Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Olivia Charmaine Morris. Olivia is a TV executive and director of development, original scripted programming at the TBS Network. In 2019, Olivia received an Executive Shadow and Act Rising Award. Outside of the entertainment industry, Olivia has also dedicated herself to a lifelong pursuit of international exploration and service from Cuba to Spain and Ghana to Nicaragua. Olivia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We are very, 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 very excited to have you on the show. The first thing I have to say, I think I mentioned earlier, is that we reach out to a lot of guests. We've had, I think, 59 guests by the time we've recorded this. You were the first person that in our correspondence used a GIF of a high five. So that to me just signaled like, I know this is going to be a fun episode and there's a lot of positive energy coming from you. Absolutely. I was like, I'm always up in there having some new friends. And the second part of why we're excited is that we've never had a studio executive on the development side on the show. And obviously we talk a lot to writers about writing, but we don't always capture the other side of it, which is you know, how do things get picked up and developed? And what is the thought process from that side? And that perspective, I think, is really important for listeners, for those aspiring writers and TV writers not going to think. So I would love to talk about that. But before we do, you're in LA. Tell us about how you got to LA, how that's important. Yeah, um, I love living in Los Angeles. I actually was born here in Inglewood but did not grow up here. Um, I was born during the LA riots of the early 90s. And I don't know if you guys know, but Florence and Normandy is always known as the start of where the riots were. And that was just right up the street from where my house was. My parents met in Cincinnati, Ohio, and that's where they raised the kids. So I'm from Ohio, but I definitely have the sensibility of someone from a bigger city. I would say I've lived in LA now five times, actually, outside of being born here. And every time I've always moved here for a different job. So now this time around has been another three years. But in total, I've I've been back and forth for about 10 years between New York and LA. How did the role come about that you're in now? Obviously, you're in development, and we can get into that in a little bit, what that means. How did that career trajectory kind of unfold? So I went to New York University for film and TV production. And there's not really a curricula for being a development executive, even at one of the best film schools in the world. But I had a professor my freshman year who was an adjunct professor. She taught one class over the summer. and But full-time, her job was being a development executive at MTV at the time in New York. And it was the first time I had ever heard of a career that felt like a really perfect synthesis between someone who's really creative and also really analytical. And so every internship, every assistant job I've I've ever had has always been in development. And I came up through the kids' animated space. So I was at Nickelodeon and DreamWorks and a couple independent animation production companies. And I ended up working at TBS because although it's not specifically in the kids' space, it's still comedy. And that's really at the heart of all of kids' programming. So it was a really natural segue into opening up Uh, really just the rest of TV opportunities when you're working in cable. And before we get into kind of the process of what you do, walk us through the difference between what a studio exec is, what a director of development is. Can you walk us through what that all means and and where you fit into it? Yes. So I work at a network, CBS, and a TV executive working in development, uh, a lot of those are actually just synonyms. I would say Being a TV executive means that you are on the business side of creative content. Uh, Someone who's wearing a suit, you know, at least um, to some extent. I would say working in TV development, there's a variety of levels. Everyone from an assistant to a coordinator. My title is director, and that just means that I'm at a senior level on the hierarchy. But that's really what that means. Do you want to just kind of get into what the role of a development executive is? Sure. I would love to start because I know I read on your bio, you had broken it down in a very kind of easy to kind of follow way. You said 
strategizing as to what's next, delivering what's new, pulling in fresh talent, and also managing and maintaining current shows. And you referenced The Last OG starring Tracy Morgan and Tiffany Haddish, which is the number one cable comedy in 2018. You mentioned those things. I would love to maybe break it down and compartmentalize it that way. Would that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Okay, The first thing I'll say is a lot of different networks have two different departments for development and for current programming, which basically means development is anything that hasn't made it to air yet all the way through either a pilot or most often a first season of the show. And then some networks will take that show and then an entire different executive team will start covering it once it's in its second season. That's why it's called Current because it's currently on the air. But at TVS, it's actually a, a pretty small team of executives and we do development and current. That's why there are all these different phases. First, as you mentioned, is strategizing as to what's next. So that is the heart of what development is. That means being able to track trends of what other networks are doing in terms of programming, in terms of talent that's popping, and also trends in storytelling. So for instance, I don't know if you remember, this was maybe 2000 and I want to say maybe like 2010, a lot of movie studios were doing these fractured fairy tales. Like, I don't know if you remember, there was like Alice in Wonderland came right. out. There was a version uh, of, um, I'm trying to remember, Cinderella. I think it was like the first Maleficent came out. So there, there was like a lot of these fractured fairy tales. That was a trend that was happening in the industry at the time. And, and you kind of see that in film and television. But then I would also say, practically speaking on a day-to-day, that means that I'm listening to pitches when someone says, hey, I have a TV show idea, they'll come in. I'm reading scripts that are available. And because I work in comedy, I'll also go to stand-up sets and try to find new comedians. I have meetings every day with new writers, directors, and producers. So that's really the strategizing as to what's next is helping pull in new talent for the network. And then as far as where are you finding the talent? When you sit down and say, this is what we need, how do you source that talent? How do you find these people? You said you go to comedy shows. How do people approach you? I would assume that it's through agents, it's through that kind of... Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's a very formal process. It's through agents or managers. So you've heard of the big agencies, WME, CAA, UTA, and there's a right. lot of management companies as well. They have covering agents. So within that lit department, they'll have one or two agents or managers that specifically cover TBS. So we can develop a really good relationship. I've been there now for three years. And so I have some reps that call me on a really regular basis. Sometimes it's just when they have a project, others check in once a week. It really kind of just depends on our relationship. But they really start to understand my taste and the tone and, and the things that would really resonate with me. So they'll call me specifically and say, hey, I have this new artist. She's a writer. She's from Boston. Here's what she's written. Can I please send you a sample? And then from there, it would either be someone who could potentially be a writer on one of our shows in the future. It could be a comedian. It could be a director. But that's really how I find the majority of my new talent. In addition to that, I also go to different comedy festivals and film festivals. And I'm always online. So it's important for us to be proactive and not just reactive. But but a lot of it is agents and managers bringing me people all the time. And what does that relationship look like once you find talent you're interested in? I mean, obviously, in the beginning, you're working with the agent. Once you're in touch with the potential talent, does that look like multiple meetings? Are you keeping in touch? What is the point A from maybe you being interested to getting to a point where maybe they're pitching a show or they're starting production on a show? Yeah, I would say my first and most important point of contact is that general meeting when someone comes into my office and we either have 30 minutes or an hour depending. And it's really all their time. It's really me getting to know them. And there is an art to a general meeting. I would say making sure that you spend as much time selling yourself and your work as you do getting information about that network. When a writer or talent walks out of the room, I want them to be able to say, I know exactly what TBS is looking for and specifically what Olivia is looking for. I would also say I always specifically ask some questions to the effect of, for a writer, I would say, what kind of show would get you out of bed, rush into the writer's room and make you excited every day? Sometimes that's a show that's on the air. Sometimes it's just a concept that they're working on. And why that's important for me is because broadcast networks, broadcast CBS, ABC, Fox, NBC, they have what's called pilot season, which I know writers know really well, especially TV writers. We don't have pilot season, which means that we can start production on a show at any point in the year, open up a writer's room at any point in the year. 
I could have a general in January and not open up a writer's room until October. And if I have eight slots that are available, I want to be able to say, oh, this is a genre show. I met this awesome genre writer who I know for a fact has only written comic books, but you know, if a show like this came up, I know that she would love it. So that would be my opportunity to have had that conversation. And then I maintain a list just of, of different needs so that I can kind of plug and play later on. But I would also say it's really, really important for, for talent to keep up with me. So I'm meeting, who knows, upwards of hundreds of people a year, probably more individual one-on-one meetings. And so I would say I love writers and comedians or actors that'll follow up with me and just say, you know, hey, I'm working on a new sample or I have an improv show that's going up or I'm on a new podcast. Like just because it's, I think by them being proactive and helping them stay top of mind for me, it's also easier for me to kind of keep up with them as well, as opposed to having to just check in with everyone that I like. And you said when you have those meetings uh, with potential talent and sit down and they identify kind of what the needs of the network are, let's say we walked in and asked you, what are your needs? Is there something that you specifically are looking for in writers or content? Like, is there one thing that separates TBS content or what you're working on as opposed to another network? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's important here to kind of give the 30-second overview for how TBS has just changed in the past few years. So historically, TBS made what I call comfort food shows or TV dinner shows. They were skewing the middle of the country. They were multi-camp sitcoms. The audience was typically uh, much older than they, than they are now, uh, white male audience. And really, we made we had a lot of syndicated content and a lot of reruns. So if you're watching TBS, you might see Everybody Loves Raymond and Seinfeld and Friends, and one new original show. And that show, you kind of wanted to have the same tone and sensibility. So that's why there were a lot of multicams. I would say it's really only been a little more than three years that we've had completely new programming. In 2016, we canceled every show that we had that was an original other than Conan, which we licensed from NBC. And New Episodes of American Dad that we do, that's a co-production with Fox. Other than that, every show got canceled. So it's almost functioning like startups. And what was interesting was we just wanted to create credibility in the half-hour comedy space. You know, we are basic cable. I think that we were kind of considering ourselves more like a broadcast network. And so we wanted to do shows that felt elevated, that felt premium. You know, we're competing with premium and subscription cable. We're competing with streaming. We're competing with video games and all this other these places that you want to find content. And so I think we wanted to do true comedy. So whether that means it's Bright Blue Sky or Joke a Minute visual gags or something that could be a little bit more satirical or um, something that could be really, really grounded but still has a comedic element, we always want to be able to point to where that comedic driver is. I would also say we love true character development. I think other networks that do comedy sometimes could either be, it's really more about the joke than the actual character, but I think characters really come first for us. And then I would also say there's got to be some sort of heart or optimism. You know, we don't really do comedy that feels mean-spirited by any way. So not to say, again, that it has to be really, really fluffy and popcorn kind of humor, but I would say that there has to be some sort of, yeah, some kind of heart that's, that's driving all of our shows. You mentioned in the strategizing phase trends. How do the trends that are going on now, especially with, you mentioned serialized content, streaming, and there's so many networks and ways to watch content now. And the way people consume content has changed in the form of like binging. How has that influenced your content, especially on the comedy side? It's changed everything, really. Um, I would say one of the biggest trends that I've seen would be, like you mentioned, serialized comedy. I think ordinarily, I would get a lot of pitches that were episodic comedies, meaning standalone episodes. You can put them in any order. Um, you can come into an episode from the third season and then watch them from the third season. And they're, they're inconsequential from a storytelling perspective in terms of understanding and enjoying the show. I think now, because of binging, and, and that really is the way that most people are consuming TV, I think now I've been getting a lot of serialized comedies, which is really, really interesting. I think that lends for longer character arcs. I think it, it lends for a lot more grounded type of shows. I know that's a word I've used and we'll probably use several more times here. But grounded to me really means that these characters feel like they exist in the same world that you and I do. And that's that's fairly new. You know, that's not a laugh track. That's not being 
you know, cued to even to laugh, but it really is something that feels a little bit more subversive. Another trend I would say that that I really enjoy is either a genre blend or a tonal blend. So a couple examples of TBS shows that I think kind of hit those trends. One would be a show called People of Earth, um, had a couple of seasons in 2016 and 2017. And it was a sci-fi comedy. So sci-fi meaning that you actually... It was, a, it was about a group of people who were abducted by aliens and they were in a support group. And it sounds like it could be really, really silly, but it was actually a, a fairly grounded show in that you actually saw aliens, you are on the spaceship, you know, one alien had truly had lizard skin and another one had gray skin. But the way that the comedy played, it was a Greg Daniel show. And so it kind of had the feeling of The Office or Parks and Rec or just any other workplace comedy, which was pretty interesting. And then I would say another tonal genre blend of ours is Search Party, which was another show that aired in our first batch of new shows in 2016, has had a few seasons as well, and is about to go into production on its fourth season. And that show is a mystery comedy. So it's centered around a girl played by Alia Shakat, who was um, maybe on Arrested Development. She's a very talented actress. And she plays this character who, after her friend goes missing, she just becomes absolutely obsessed with finding her. And as opposed to just being something that is just, you know, a really silly show about millennial 20-somethings living in New York that are, you know, filling their time with frivolous things, it's a true mystery. And I think if you get into the second season and subsequent seasons, it actually feels like a thriller and it becomes more and more suspenseful and there's actual death and actual murder and the stakes are real. And um, the creators, uh, SV and Charles, they come from the indie film world. And so they added a lot of texture i think to that world and so i think in the comedy space being able to blend different tones and genres again is something that is a pretty new trend that i'm really really excited about and then obviously the last phase which we haven't gone into yet is managing and maintaining current shows you mentioned the last og on your website what does that look like how much of your role do you spend on that versus finding new talent well maintaining current shows is actually the most important part of my job. That means that a show that's made it to air and has gotten picked up for subsequent seasons is now making the network money. And that's always the most important thing. Whenever we have content that is now consumer-facing and has now had marketing, promotions, and award campaigns, like at that point, it's out in the world. And it's important to, to get as many seasons as possible. So for The Last OG, that's a show that I was in the pitch for. It was created by uh, Jordan Peele, another writer, John Carcieri. And Tracy Morgan walks in the room and Jordan Peele walks in the room and they had a hilarious pitch. And in buying that show, you know, we're now in the writer's room for the third season. And, and it, I've been on the show now for three years, which is really exciting. I would say what's important about managing a current show versus development, which to me to some extent, development is what's new and shiny. Everyone loves new and shiny. But what's important about maintaining a current show is that, one, it's able to stay true to the audience that you're building season over season. Like it doesn't, sometimes people might say like jump the shark or go off the rails or, you know, you tune into a show you haven't seen for a while and you're like, it feels totally different. Like you want to make sure that you're maintaining that experience. But I'd also say that you want to make sure that you're able to also grow the show. So that means grow the audience. That means allow your actors to try new things. It means finding new story areas for the scripts that feel new and fresh. So every season, there has to be a new high value proposition to get your audience to, to tune back in. So that starts from the script phase, but goes all the way through, you know, when we're just doing key art for the new posters and everything, everything like that. And how would you say you as an executive differ than other development executives? I know, obviously, TBS is the things it's looking for, but obviously, you have your own kind of curated strengths, weaknesses, things you're looking for. How would you describe how you differ than other executives? Yeah, I think it's two things. One is that I grew up as an artist. I, when I was really, really little, I started acting in theater and musical theater. I used to travel doing shows. I used to play instruments. I went to a performance arts high school. So um, at one point, I thought that I was going to go to Juilliard and go on Broadway. And when I went to film school, I didn't automatically know that I wanted to be on the business side. You know, I thought that I didn't know if I wanted to be 
a writer, director, like everyone that goes to this. But I did know that um, I wanted to be involved in the actual, the art in the craft. And so I think being an artist, but also someone that's always been an absolute and total nerd, where the the budgeting and the financing and the scheduling and, and all of that stuff that comes with being able to actually produce a show, that does come naturally. But I think being an artist first, we are a really talent-centric network, meaning we don't have a ton of current shows at any given point. You know, it could be somewhere around the number 10. And because of that, that means you're only working with 10 showrunners, you know, 10 writers rooms, 10 creative teams. And so to some extent, it's almost like we're a boutique network. And so for me, I think being someone that's an artist, I always want to approach every single show as, am I giving this artist a safe space to play? I would say another thing that makes me different is I am African-American, I'm female, I'm really young for my age, and I'm queer. And I think historically, a lot of suits on the development side are have been white men for many, many years, um, going back to really the beginning of the entertainment system and, and the studio system. And so I think being someone who has all of these different otherized qualities I'm consistently looking for shows that, that are by and from and feature marginalized voices. And so I like to say I'm looking at things that are at the intersection of otherness. An example of that is there was this web series that I loved called Brown Girls that was created by an amazing writer named Fati Asagar and was directed by another writer named Sam Bailey. And they're both women of color. And one of the main characters of that show is a queer Muslim girl and she speaks Arabic. So when you open up on the first episode, she is talking on the phone with her auntie. It's all subtitled in Arabic. And she's, her aunt is asking if she's on the way to the mosque. And clearly the audience can see that she's not. She's in her room, half-dressed, and scrambling, get ready, completely lying. And then as she's walking out, the camera pans, and you see that there's a girl in her bed. And I love that story because there's so many different access points that you normally don't see, but they're in conversation with each other. And so, you know, being a queer Muslim girl could be tragic, it could be hysterical, or it could just be an average ordinary experience, you know? And so I love stories that do feel really, really layered and nuanced and and nutrient rich when it comes down to otherness. You mentioned that you, your background is being a creative yourself. Is it possible for someone who's a development executive to also balance being a creator and an exec, or is there a catch-22 there? I think so. I mean, it's a bit of a catch-22, but I also think it really, really depends on what kind of creative you are and what company you work for. For me, you know, at this point in my career, I don't have any TV shows that I really want to make. I love being someone that can help facilitate other people's ideas. But I will say, I think my creative outlet comes outside of giving creative feedback from, you know, on any given show or project. I think it really comes when I think about speaking, like opportunities like this one. I do a lot of speaking at universities and just, you know, different places around town that kind of want to learn about what development means. I think that eventually I want to write about it and and teach. I think um, that's a different form of creative expression. But I will say that um, I have I have a few different friends who are multi-hyphenates. I think that are development executives that either run their own podcast or they're a development executive and they also run their own comedy show. I do think that places like New York and LA just facilitate the life of a multi-hyphenate. But yes, I mean, the, the priority of the job is always in all things that I do. I am a representative of my network, you know, so there, there are some constraints there. I'd love to spend the next uh, phase of the interview talking about the process of finding talent and kind of the pitch and all that kind of thing. Could we start with that process? Writers have agents. The agents contact you. How would you suggest aspiring writers who don't have agents get agents? I know obviously that's not necessarily, you might not be involved in that, but I'm sure you've had a window into it. Yeah. I mean, I would say listeners that don't live in New York or LA or, you know, a couple other markets like Atlanta, Chicago, a few cities have other like bourgeoning markets. But I would say, you know, you're already at a bit of a disadvantage because that's where those people physically are. And I think that there is such a high volume of talent that are in those major markets that if you're outside of those markets, 
you're automatically dropping down to a category where an agent or manager is going to have to work harder to find you and find your work. I would also say that uh, from an agent or manager perspective, they're constantly looking. And so I think the goal is to put yourself where they are. So for instance, does that mean a podcast? Does that mean a YouTube channel? Does that mean like bulking up the rest of your social media? Does that mean a film festival? You know, I think their job is to constantly be calling every single environment to find new talent. And so I think as long as you're, you're consistently putting your work out there, I mean, I know a lot of writers that were playwrights, you know, and mounted a, a lot of plays and that's how they were able to be discovered. Um, or whether it's like publishing a book. I think there's a lot of different avenues for it, but it, it really has to be someone who is putting their work out there into the world. Otherwise, it's going to be really, really hard to find someone or for someone else to find you. So the writer then gets the agent. Agent contacts you. You say, oh, you know, I'm interested in this work that maybe they sent over. And you set up a meeting and they come in. And then based on the meeting, maybe they find out what you're looking for. And I assume following that, keep in touch. And then after that, they could have the opportunity to pitch. What does that pitch process look like? Yeah, well, the pitch process always starts with exactly like you're saying, an agent or manager saying, hey, my client has been working on something for a while and it's going to be the best thing you've ever heard. My favorite agents and managers can always really, really sell it over the phone, which is always really fun to hear. I would say that from there, if, if whatever they say on the phone piques my interest in being completely transparent sometimes, the idea is just okay, but I really love the actor that's attached to it. Or I really love the production company or the producer. Or I'm like, it's not quite there, but it sounds weird enough that I feel like I've never heard it before. <laughs> a lot of times I'm just like, sure, why not? I'd love to hear how they, how they make that work. Sometimes they also send content in advance. So they might have shot a pilot or shot a sizzle reel, you know, like a, an example of what a scene could look like. Or they've written the pilot. That's actually my favorite, especially if it's a new writer. And just read the script in advance and, you know, and not waste anybody's time. And then from there, the pitch is set and they come into the office. It's always me and at least one other executive in the room because it's always important to have more than one perspective so we can have a fuller conversation with the team after every pitch. And then from there, they come in and have any variety of materials. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to be inundated with materials, but whatever is helpful for me to follow along with the story. So if it's an animated show, I love seeing a character design, you know, just to kind of have a sense of what the tone and the feel is just from the look of the show. I love when people bring in any sort of visual aid. If, you know, if someone's pitching out a show where there's 25 characters, I'm going to lose track after like four or five of them. So someone having, you know, some kind of visual, I think is really helpful. And then after they pitch, you know, it's really up to me. Are we going to buy it or not? It's a decision that's only made within just a few days. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. And is there a secret to the pitch? And also, is there something that people definitely shouldn't do when they pitch? Yes, there's definitely an art to the pitch. I would say the most important thing for me is Selling the emotion. 
that the show is going to create, right? I think a show could make you scared. It could make you laugh. It could make you cry. It could make you feel inspired, whatever it is. I think that that feeling has to be really, really clear through the pitch. I think if it's a funny show, I have to be able to walk away and understand, here's what makes it funny. This character is funny. Or this character is a straight character, but all the scenarios around him are funny. I think that's really, really, especially for TVS, I have to be able to understand what the comedic driver is. A lot of times people will come in and pitch a show that feels super, super dry and really quiet or actually really dark and sad. And by the end of it, they're like, oh, we promise it's a comedy and I promise I'll write it funny. And I'm like, (laughs) which part is funny? And like, is it the dialogue? Like, is it the fact that like only your main character has a rain cloud over its head and everyone else is, you know, sunny optimism? It has to be really clear. I would say something to not do during the pitch. There's a few things. One is don't spend so much time telling me scene by scene by scene of a pilot, especially if you've already written the pilot and I can read it afterwards. Don't spend so much time doing that and then neglecting to tell me, you know, what are the overall series arcs? What can we expect for our character by season three? Can you tell me what the tone of the show is? I think that's so important. You know, a lot of times, I get a pitch of something that feels really formulaic because they might have seen us do a show like that in the past and they think that that'll work. So for instance, like I get a lot of workplace comedies where they'll be like, it, it feels like The Office or feels like Parks and Rec and here's this character and that character. And they really just feel like stop characters, like here's the goofy one, here's the, you know, the, the grumpy one. And I think any show that feels really, really formulaic um, is just is not a show that's going to break through. Like As you mentioned, there's so much content. So I also think being able to say, yeah, it's a workplace comedy, but it has the tone of The Walking Dead. Now I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds a little different. And you're able to lean in a little bit further. So I would say, yes, nailing down the tone, nailing down the emotion, and and giving us a clear understanding of how your characters are going to be growing or changing or not. Anytime I hear a pitch and it feels like this feels like it'll lose steam after two episodes, or you really tied it up in a neat bow at the end of 10 10 episodes, but I don't know why we tune in for season two. I want to know that because, um, you know, we, we want to have a, a really strong return on investment for any show that we're buying. And we want to know that it has longevity. When you hear a pitch that you like, how long is the process between getting it to a point where you want to develop that show? I imagine at some point there's a pilot that needs to be written. Walk us through kind mm-hmm. of that next step. Yeah. So we do a six-step development process if we're doing a script. So the, the different phases of buying after hearing a pitch, we could buy a script, we could buy a pilot, or we could go straight to series. We've gone straight to series a couple of times. The last G is one example where it became a really competitive situation. And so if we were going to buy the show, we had to commit to doing that, which is very exciting and also very expensive and high risk, high reward. And I would say for a script, we really kind of start from, from page one. Even if there was a script that was already written, it's still going to kind of feel like a page one conversation where we're kind of talking about, okay, let's, let's, we have a kickoff meeting. We talk about the world of the show and the characters and the tone and the arcs and all those things I mentioned. And then we kind of try to nail down what do we think is our best pilot story area. If it's based on a script that was already written, we kind of determine, is this the way that we want to go or do we want to kind of embellish it or scrap it? And then once we kind of nail down a story area, we might get a version of a treatment or an outline before we get drafts of script. And then we give notes at every single draft, revision, and polish until we have a final pilot script. And then from there, we have to decide, okay, are we going to shoot this pilot? Most scripts we develop, we did not shoot a pilot. Last year, we shot one full pilot and, and maybe a handful of pilot presentations, which are shorter versions, maybe like 10 to 15 minutes, kind of giving a sense of what a full episode would be like. And I would say, but if we shoot a pilot, nine times out of 10, that pilot will go to series. It's very rare that we shoot a pilot and it doesn't go to series because at that point you've made such a big investment in casting and building the production and all of that stuff. And then, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the process. It's, it can be a long process depending. I mean, I've had some shows that like last year, GOK went straight to series. So we bought it in the fall and by the spring we were shooting a pilot because we had to move that quickly. But I've also had other projects that I bought that was just an idea, nothing on the page. And it took us a whole year to get to a draft of a script that we that we all could have, you know, liked. 
and determine whether or not we were going to write a pilot so or shoot a pilot, excuse me. So it really depends on on just the writer, the production process, everything. There's there's a lot of variables, but um, I like that we never put our writers through the ringer, meaning it's never really a rush. So because we don't have that pilot season, we're never rushing to the, the finish line necessarily to where we're like, you know, we need a draft in two months or else this project is going to go away. Like it's, it's never that dramatic, which is nice. When you are going to greenlight a project and you've got the writer and the creator, how do you decide whether that writer has the experience to be the showrunner as well? Who makes the decision? Are you involved in that? Yeah, definitely involved in that. I would say what's cool about the TV writing process, which is different than the film writing process, is that there's, there is a true hierarchy in the writer's room from being a writer's assistant or a production assistant and rising the ranks through staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, you know, going all the way to the co-EP level and the supervising producer and all that stuff before you become a showrunner. I would say that it, it really has to do with the work ethic and the product that you're getting back from the writer. I mean, there's some, we call them baby writers. If they haven't sold a show or written on a show before, they could be 70 years old and still be a baby writer. But what's interesting about baby writers is sometimes you get projects back and you're like, you can tell that this is their first time writing. You know, it feels like potentially like a writer's workshop, right? Or it feels like we're in class. But then other times you get something from a writer and it's their first time writing. And you're like, this is, prolific like this is ready to shoot tomorrow i have one note it's very small so it really just depends but i would say if it is a writer that does feel new they've never run a show before they've never really been in a room before but their idea is amazing more often than not we would pair them with a more seasoned showrunner just to ensure that the project's going to get done you know i think that I, I love the pairing process because we've never kind of impose a showrunner on a writer where we say you have no other option it's this person or not it's because it's someone we want to work with it's always a it's always a collaborative experience so it'll be their managers weighing in their agents weighing in if there's producers on the show often there is the producers will weigh in and a lot of times if there's studio attached the studio will actually run all of the interviews for the showrunner potential candidates and then bring us some options and we'll get to select so it is a conversation of like who is the best person to pair with this person because we want to make it work. We would never want to have a really, really great idea. And because of a mismatched pairing, that's the reason why it doesn't make it to air. So it's, it's a very, um, it's almost like speed dating to some extent to where we, we really want the, the pair to, to work out. Once a writer becomes a creator or showrunner and their show is in the, the process and it's going and they're working with you, what are some things that they can do once they have that opportunity to create a positive and longstanding relationship with you and the network? And make sure they get that next gig as well. The most important thing is consistency. You know, whether you are a writer's assistant working for the very first time in a writer's room or you're a showrunner, I mean, it is a very, very collaborative experience across the board. And there's always going to be someone you're held accountable to, right? There's always going to be either the showrunner is your boss or the network is your boss or the studio is your boss or whoever. There's always going to be someone who is looking to you for consistent work. And there's always going to be someone that can vouch for you. And so if it's someone that's in the writer's room, I want to hear a report back from my showrunner of like, oh, this person was always on work on time. They kept great notes. They had really great ideas. They felt really collaborative. I would love to bring them back for another year for the next room. I would say from a showrunner perspective, it has to be someone who's willing to roll their sleeves up and work together. So if there's an issue, I want them to come to me first as opposed to me hearing about it. You know, I want us to be able to work through issues together. I want someone to that is really creative, always has great ideas and can address notes. I mean, that is a lot of people talk about network notes and how network notes can, can be such a drag, which can be true to some extent. But at the end of the day, you know, we have standards and practices. You know, we have we are ad supported, you know, so there's, there's only so much we can do and there are some constraints and limitations. So oftentimes we will have to give a note that might substantively change the creative that the showrunner would want. And I think someone who is open to adapting and figuring it out, I think is really, really important because these shows can be really, really tedious and meticulous and there's so many details. 
and you want someone that can answer the yes, the big overall questions of like what's going to happen with this character, but also the really tiny things like, okay, do you want this person to be wearing a green shirt or a yellow shirt? Which one affects their character more? Like they have to be able to speak to all of that. Going back to the idea side of things, I have a few idea-related questions. Um, the first one being, in a world, as we mentioned, oversaturated with content almost, how does one find and come up with original ideas? Everything's been done, they say, but how do you find a new mm-hmm. uh, original idea? Sure. I don't think that everything's been done at all. Um, I, don't, I don't buy into that. I think that there's a lot of arenas that people have touched on, you know, whether arena meaning... Is it a family show? Is it a, a rom-com? Is it a, an ensemble buddy comedy show? Is it set in the future? Is it a period piece? Like there are definitely arenas that people touch on a lot, but what hasn't been done are all of the different perspectives. And again, that's why a lot of times I go back to diversity and inclusion, not just as buzzwords, but really as opportunities for finding new stories. So another example is if it is too white girls that are running a boutique is one pitch of a show. And the other show is two Dominican girls in the Bronx that are running a bodega. You already hear in the second show that there are those different entry points of a show that you're like, Oh, I don't know if I've ever seen that version of the show. You know, either show, let's say you say it's totally like broad city. It's loud. It's flashy. It's two best girlfriends, you know, going off on hiking and adventures. But if you're looking at it from, from that collection of not to always qualified as marginalized groups, but really just saying these, these stories and storytellers that are often not on TV. I think that's how you're going to get a new and original idea. I think the other thing is kind of going back to what I said earlier about a tonal blend or a genre blend. That's another thing that makes it really different. So for instance, is it a world just like yours and mine, but it's set in a snow globe? Everything else could be exactly the same. But now you're like, oh, that kind of sounds like something like Truman Show. Like, that's interesting, right? So I think um, there's, there's always going to be different filters that you can put on shows that make it really different, even if you're in a, a tried and true arena. Next content-related question. What kind of non-TV content that could be adapted, let's say, for those comic writers who are working on projects now, those novelists who are working on novels, what best lends itself to being adapted, let's say, for a TBS TV show? I would say really anything can be adapted as long as it kind of goes back to those, those core buckets of, you know, character-driven with heart. That's a true comedy. I think between comic books and novels, comic books are tricky only because if we do a superhero show, you know, we don't have the DC vault, we don't have the Marvel vault. And so if we're going to be doing original comic book characters, it's almost like we have to nail a tone that feels fresh and original. So it's almost like, is it going to be a tone that's like a parody kind of like Deadpool? Or is it going to be really, really earnest and true to the comic book world, almost like a DC or Marvel character? And really it's like, what's going to serve the audience best? Like if we're at Comic-Con and we put it up on the screen and it's standing next to these DC and Marvel shows, is it going to be something that people really want to watch? So I think comic books can definitely be done in graphic novels, but I think it almost has to be something that might not necessarily be a superhero, like maybe something a little bit more like politically driven or, you know, something, something with a little bit more social commentary, I think could be a little bit more interesting and, and have a little more depth for us to play with. I think from a novel perspective, really anything, you know, we don't have mandates in terms of genre. So we don't have to pick any particular boxes. So whether it's, you know, a mystery or a horror comedy or whatever it is, I think really, truly anything can be adapted. I have seen it all. How do the shows networks are looking for in 2019 differ than what they were looking for, let's say, 10 to 20 years ago? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, that really gets into what is the TV landscape now versus 10 or 20 years ago. You know, my all-time favorite show is much older than 20 years, but I, I think really illustrates what I'm about to say, is I Love Lucy, right? It is a show that came on the air in the 40s and has never been off the air since, which is absolutely incredible. It's my all-time favorite. And at the time, I mean, there was only three networks for people to choose from, right? You're sitting at home live, no opportunity to record it. And there's also nothing else pulling attention, right? Your phone's not pulling your attention. 
movie theater is not pulling your attention. You just, and maybe, maybe the radio is pulling your attention. That's it. But I think right now we don't have that same appointment habit that we had to have before we could record our own content. Meaning that I remember when I was younger, um, I think I was probably, I was, I was definitely a kid. So Monk was on USA. Again, one of my favorite shows growing up, Tony Shalhoub at his best. And I used to have to go to the dollar store every Thursday night to buy two VHS tapes so I could record the show on Friday so I can Friday night to make sure that I caught it, which is hilarious because then TiVo came out and everyone was like, oh my God, I didn't have to be home to get it. And so I think, you know, because there's no such thing as appointment viewing where you have to watch it when it comes on. And we also used to have something called like water cooler conversation, which is that whole idea of the next morning, what is everyone talking about? I think it's really hard to create that appointment habit and that water cooler conversation. So I think people are looking for ways to stimulate that experience. I think Game of Thrones did that absolutely remarkably, but that is really the exception to most of the the rule. And I think in a world where there is constant high content curation from a, a personal point of view, where we can, if we're on Instagram, we're swiping up, down, left or right, you know, to determine whether or not we want to further engage with something. It has to be something that is all the buzzers of the year, disruptive, you know, you can pay attention to, to cord cutters or it's, it's buzzworthy, whatever that is. It has to be something that is truly gripping. Otherwise, it's just going to be lost. Moving on to what we call a series of seemingly random questions. The first one, we've been talking about what you do. It sounds like a ton of work. Obviously, I'm very passionate <laughs> about it. How do you find a work-life balance? Great question. I would say my... Biggest thing that I, that I always tell people that's not really related to the business, but I think is related to all facets of life is self-care. I think um, I'm someone who at a really young age, really just total transparency, had a nervous breakdown. I was right out of college and was, was working two jobs full time and had a crazy long commute and wasn't eating properly, wasn't working out. And truly, my body was like, you need to sit down and take a break. And I think having had that experience at such a young age, I think it really helped me realize that I can't really do anything if I'm not taking care of me first. And I think self-care now has gotten really commodified and it has to be like, are you traveling on some fancy trip or are you going to some amazing spa? I think it can be as simple as have you gotten as much sleep as you need? Are you eating regularly? You know, do you have some sort of, nutritional plan, you have things that make you happy that are not related to work, whether that's, whether it's working out or whether that's, you know, like I said, as an artist, a lot of times I'm like, when was the last time I went to a a visual art gallery or listen to live music or um, have read a new book of poetry? I think having those outlets that are outside of work, that is really the true work-life balance. I really, truly have it easy because I love my job and because I work in entertainment, I think we have this selfish thing where we can also ask ourselves, well, am I entertained? Like, am I having fun with my job? My job is just, am I laughing, right? So I think because I work in a field where I'm supposed to be making other people laugh and I'm laughing, I think it's really important to maintain my true inner happiness or else, you know, I'm just going to be a grump and nothing's going to be funny. I mean, none of the shows I make are really going to be funny. Which leads me to the next question. If you could take one year off to do anything, what would you do? That's a great question. It would involve some sort of travel. I might kind of break up the year in sections. Like I have, by the end of the year, I'll have my niece and nephew, nine and 10, and they're all over the country. So I would probably spend some time with all these little children. I would probably teach somewhere. I would love to teach um, like a few week long class about development, maybe at NYU. I would probably write a book on development, maybe do a bit of a book tour. So I think I would be working, but just in a different capacity. But I love travel. So I know that that would have to be part of that year, quote unquote, off. (laughs) for sure. As I mentioned in your bio, 2018, you received an Executive Shadow and Act Rising Award. Tell us about that award, what it means to you. Yeah. So Shadow and Act is a website that really has all sort of information about 
movies, TV show, just other web content and pop culture that is for from Black content creators. And I loved winning that award. So it was their first year doing it. They had a few different categories. It was, they had actors and behind the scenes. But my category was executives. And from an executive standpoint, uh, a lot of people don't actually know what development executives do, let alone who they are. Like even your all-time favorite show, like let's say your favorite show is Breaking Bad. Like, you know the name of the actor, you might know the name of the director of your favorite episode or one of the writers, but do you know the development executive that bought that show and worked on it for the life of it? Probably not. And so I think because development executives aren't producers, we don't get producer credit. Even if our show goes on to win an Emmy, we probably won't be on stage getting a trophy. I think having these opportunities for recognition are really few and far between. And especially coming from a company that is specifically highlighting uh, just Black people and Black content, uh, standing amongst my peers and Barry Jenkins is the keynote. It was really, really inspiring and uh, just really motivating, I think, and affirming in the work that I've done to this point in my career. If you could suggest a question that we ask one of our next guests, what would you ask and why? Hmm, that is a good question. I would ask, ooh, I would ask, is there any project that you wrote more than, had to be a big number, maybe more than five or 10 years ago that you consider dusting off and refreshing today? And why not? Why haven't you done it? Or are you working on doing that? I love that question because I think there's so many, it happens a lot in the feature film world because I think movies take a long time to do, but I think TV writers have them as well. These projects that are kind of just sitting on a shelf somewhere that really might be the, the next big thing. Um, yeah, I, I definitely love asking writers that question that have been around for a long time. So normally, we would ask that question to you. In this case, we might adapt it a bit and say, is there any project at all in your life that maybe, whether it's traveling somewhere or something you've put off from five to 10 years ago, that you would like to pick back up and that maybe you've been putting off, but you'd like to finally uh, pick it up? Hmm. I would say, I would say I, because I came up doing musicals on the stage, I'm really fascinated lately about doing a TV musical and not one like shows, like not the show like Glee where they're literally in the Glee club and the musicals are musical numbers that they're doing. Like I, I think something really, again, grounded and played really, really straight where, for instance, like if it's a, an Indian family romantic comedy and they're, they're meeting the in-laws for the first episode and that episode is a Bollywood episode, like, but it's, it's done with full musical production value. I'm really fascinated by that because it's a, it's a white area. I mean, I think there's, Every now and then there's a couple musical shows or, or, you know, dance driven shows, but most of the time they're unscripted. And if they're scripted, a lot of times it's really silly kind of over the top, like musical numbers. And so I'm looking for something that could be really grounded. I definitely do think that's because I grew up just listening to original Broadway albums all day, all night. If you could be any of the characters from one of the shows you've developed, which character would you choose and why? (laughs) I love Tiffany Haddish's character in The Last OD, her name is Shay, because she comes from a really hard background. You know, we do not shy away from it. And, but when we meet her at the top of this, the first season in the pilot, she has pulled herself up in every sense. You know, she is married, she has kids, she has a really successful job, she's really happy. And I think it's rare seeing happy, strong, content, sophisticated, professional black women on TV, especially when we know they come from really hard backgrounds. And so I think I love that our character is really well-rounded, but also really funny and and loving as well. The next question, if you could take any writer living or dead to any fast food restaurant, which writer, which restaurant and why? Well, I'm vegan, so I don't go to a ton of fast food restaurants, (laughs) but something that I love doing in LA is all of the fruit stands. So I would take Maya Angelou to a fruit stand Meaning like where you get like fresh cucumber and watermelon and pineapple and tahini and lime and probably go sit out at a park and just talk about her life. I think it would be super fun. 
The next question, if you could choose one single learning or insight from your career to pass along to either aspiring writers or maybe even aspiring development executives, what would you say? I would say for aspiring writers, I would say make sure you have a rigorous process that almost mirrors a bodybuilder. Meaning, if you were a bodybuilder and you told me, I don't go to the gym, I don't have any nutritionist, I don't take protein, I don't take vitamins. That's basically when I hear writers saying, yeah, actually, this draft in my script is from 2013, and I don't have a, an updated draft, and I haven't been writing anything since. I think that there's a big difference between writing as a hobby and writing as a career and writing as a craft. And I think that to be a working TV writer, you have to be writing every day or you know, at least have the output that someone that's writing every day has. I think that's really important. I think aspiring TV development executives, my biggest piece of advice is know your taste. Because at the end of the day, I give a lot of no's. You know, no, I, I can't hire that person. No, I'm not buying that show. But it's not just a no. I have to really be able to articulate why. And if I'm putting my stamp on something and my energy behind something as a yes, I have to really be able to defend it from, from top down. So I think really being able to not just know what you like and, and what you dislike, but understand why and being able to articulate it and relate it back to your specific brand is a skill that can be honed whether you're a development executive or not. Next question. What's the end goal for you as a executive? What do you want to do? Do you want to be the president of a studio? What's the, yeah. What, what do you want to do? Goal. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great question. I would say similar to writers in the writer's room, executives also have a track, you know? So yes, my goal would the top role would be a president of a network. I would say, I also love the idea of moving up higher in the ranks on the network and potentially moving over to the seller side at some point and having my own production company. I think that that's a completely different muscle to flex and, and one I'd really enjoy because then I'm working with the project truly from an inception point and then trying to figure out which home around town it would best work for. I would also say at some point, I do want to work at one of the streaming companies, one of the top companies, because streaming is owned and the best way to learn that is from within the beast. So I would, I would definitely want to work at one of those tech companies as well. Second to last question. Did you want to plug any projects that are happening at TBS that are out right now? Yeah, I would just say, I just want to plug our upcoming slate this year and next year. We have Last OG Season 3 going into production soon. We have Miracle Workers coming back. We have a new animated show called Close Enough that's going to come out that has been long awaited. We're announcing Snowpiercer. You know, now it's going to be on TBS and originally produced at TNT. That looks absolutely incredible. We have a show called Chad that we're about to go into production on, which is so funny. It's about um, an actress na- named Nadine Pedrad, who is a female comedian. She is playing a 14-year-old Muslim boy named Chad, who's a freshman in high school and so painfully awkward, but so sincere and lovable, which is a coming-of-age story and also a family story. And really, really funny, but also socially aware. It's a great, great show and a perfect one for our network. Um, yeah, we just have a lot of new stuff coming. And I would say, although the Warner Media streaming platform, HBO Mass, which has been all over the news, is really exciting. That's going to be all new offerings from our streaming arm. I would say our linear network is still really robust. And if you have cable, I would continue watching. We've got some really fun stuff coming up. The last question. Drum roll. Harry, could you please slide me the envelope? All right. I now have an envelope. You can't see it because it's a podcast. I'm now opening the envelope. And the last question is, did you have fun today? (laughs) I had so much fun. Thank you so much for having me and for such thoughtful questions. This is awesome. Thank you for your positivity and for your insights. And we will have you back on when you write that book about development, when you take that year off someday. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Thank you, Olivia. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. 
You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. <laughs>